0: The control of legislatures, in particular, is a vital security interest for me personally and for my community. We have to maintain that control or we are going to be harmed.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is another progressive political technology entrepreneur, Samantha Booker. Samantha is co-founder and CEO of Shire working on a digital office tool for political campaigns. Samantha had previously been working in disaster response and in the startup tech world, including at Handshake, and came into the political campaign world from the left with brand new Congress, working on and managing a number of races. We had a good conversation about Samantha's career and how she's working to build a tool to make it easy to onboard, train, and communicate with volunteers. It's an interesting niche to tackle, If you're interested in political technology, you should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Samantha Booker.
0: Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount.
1: Samantha, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure. So I'm Samantha Booker. I am from... The great state of Tennessee and Southern Appalachia. Grew up in East Tennessee, there in, around the Chattanooga area. I am a trans woman, which has uh, informed a lot of my both my career path and and my politics uh, quite a bit, especially coming from the area that I did. In terms of a quick biography, I guess the the shortest uh, path is that I, I started out originally. My my kind of career plan was actually, as so many. Uh, trans and Appalachian people, in particular, uh, do is uh, was to to join the military. So I studied intelligence studies um, and was a member of the Civil Air Patrol, which is the Air Force Auxiliary, doing search and rescue in in the Appalachian Mountains as a teenager and and young adult. And then some common sense kicked in, and I uh, uh, decided to transition. This was under the Obama administration, so things were a bit more friendly for trans folks in the military, but, you know, I it was sort of a, which path do I pick at that moment, right? So the, the search and rescue work actually led me into doing a, a lot of disaster response work with an organization called Team Rubicon. And that was really formative. I was, I did, I think, something like 25 disaster response deployments domestically and internationally. Tornadoes, fires, hurricanes, floods, typhoons, you name it. I an intelligence analyst or a G-spatial analyst for that organization That actually is what segued me into the tech industry because somebody I ran across along the way who was a Palantir intern at the time working with Team Rubicon ended up founding Handshake. If you're familiar with them, they're the career services like uh, LinkedIn for college students, so to speak. Joined them at a a really early point in their trajectory and they were uh, just moving out to Silicon Valley. Spent... um, maybe a year and a half out there working with them. I was the first non-engineering hire uh, there at Handshake. And now they're in, I think, every university in the, in the country. They've done pretty well. Um, that kind of put me on the, uh, the tech trajectory. So I ended up um, working for a few more startups, several European ones actually, um, helping run their North American side of their businesses. And then um, uh, when I moved back from California to Tennessee, I got really involved in activism Local LGBT organizing in Chattanooga. This was in the very end of the Obama era, first first year or two of Trump. Uh, so things were going going a bit sideways there, Charlottesville and, and the whole nine yards. I I, I tell people I, I um you know I grew up and I lived like twenty minutes away from Matthew Heimbach's trailer park. So uh, <laughs> so it was an interesting time. I actually got involved with brand new Congress uh, in the pretty early days of that as well. Um, ended up working as a campaign coordinator and, and running uh, the congressional race in that in the third congressional district in Tennessee in 2018. Got involved in some local elections and then BNC tapped me to manage a U.S. Senate race in Iowa 2020 during the, the heyday of the caucuses. So that was a, a really interesting experience. And then I worked in the general uh, in West Virginia for uh, uh, apology and swear engine as well during that cycle then went into consulting and then, and landed back in tech.
1: Do you happen to know Jack Knoxville who runs the trans empowerment project? I don't think so. He's also out of Tennessee. Hence his taken last name.
0: No, uh, we might've crossed paths, but I don't think so.
1: Yeah. Uh, Interviewed him on the podcast within the last year, I I would say. And uh, interesting story and seems like a very worthwhile enterprise that, He's engaged in.
0: Yeah, Tennessee's Tennessee's rough as a trans person. It's it's obviously this recent wave of um, legislation has been really really difficult. We fought against that same kind of thing for years, but the GOP has really just sunk their teeth in. You know, it used to be that Tennessee was a lot more at a, at a state level, a lot more balanced in the legislature. At least Democrats had some sway. You know, they could kind of get in the way of certain things, but it's just gone. Completely off the deep end now, so it's hard for them to do anything.
1: They they love the wedge issue as they think of it, and using any kind of minority to advance themselves without shame.
0: Yeah, and I think we all kind of saw it coming, but it was kind of interesting over the last you know eight eight months to a year watching them almost like field test all of the different uh, possible paths they could take in which different wedge issues. And you could see them kind of, oh, it's education, oh, it's CRT, oh, it's... and then trans people and, and drag in particular apparently tested well somewhere. So that's, I guess that's what we're going with.
1: Yeah, it's awful to watch, actually. Your career is an interesting one in that you're bringing a lot of experience in tech and in politics with you along the way. if you had to summarize, what is your tech experience? What are you good at? What do you like? What have you been around?
0: I was kind of a serial startup early hire. I looked for that. And, you know, especially after, after handshake, right. I wanted that. That's kind of where I thrived. I'm not an engineer. I know enough to be dangerous, but, um, but I'm, what I'm really good at is I think building systems and, and systems thinking that's, you know, where I thrive. So I've worked, you know, as, um, It's what they now call customer success, which is a common combo package of uh, customer support, but more proactive and more data-centric, right? Account management, that sort of thing. And then also as a product manager. And sort of that's that kind of combination, what I've had in terms of formal roles. But, you know, what it really comes down to is, like I said, building systems, building processes, tools, things that can live on and and kind of uh, operate. There's a story I I tell people once I was... uh, in uh, Moore, Oklahoma, after the 2013 tornado there, and uh, and I was I was pretty young at the point at that point you know I was uh, uh, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and and. Uh... <laughs> Uh, An a, a air quotes, young boy at the time, right? So uh, people didn't, you know, a, a bunch of military veterans were not like keen to listen to me. And I was there almost the longest of anyone because they were rotating other people in and out, but I was kind of a specialist. So I was, uh, I was on the ground for quite a while. And so you would get a new batch of people rotate in and the others rotate out and then I'd have to like teach them the same things or, or kind of convince them of the same things for the second, third, fourth time. And eventually I started just creating checklists and putting signs on the walls. It was a miracle. Like it was like over, overnight. Like people just like, oh, it's the checklist. It's there. It's the system that already exists. I'm going to follow the process and do the way that the sign commands. You know, <laughs> that was like a lesson that I learned. Like at that point, was like ah, you can you can actually influence people and 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 outcomes a lot more through building systems that you don't have to be involved in, rather than trying to, to wade in and, and solve everything yourself. So that's that's how I would sum up my like career is is systems building and creating things that can, can work on their own and live on without my input.
1: Yeah. And processes and things like that are absolutely crucial to the success of scaling any kind of enterprise.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Campaigns too.
1: Yeah. So well, tell me a little bit about the political side of you. You came in through certain kind of activism, brand new Congress. I just had a Zach Exley who was founder of that on the On the podcast for a really long interview and he's an interesting fellow where do you come from politically and how would you characterize your experience there
0: yeah so it's actually really interesting to me to think about think back on that too because you know i grew up in in rural tennessee as a teenager i fell into the libertarian (laughs) alt-right uh uh you know talk show Host pipeline during those 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 days, so that was like a really interesting thing to deprogram from uh, as I like got older and got exposed to the world. But I think that's actually really I, like looking back on that, I'm glad that that happened in, in that way because it, I kind of have an insight into what makes that side of the side of the electorate tick. But what really got me, I think, politically. Uh, awakened was actually um, the Arab Spring and Occupy Wall Street. So again, teenager sitting at home in rural Tennessee, uh, hiding in my room. I actually got involved in uh, with uh, a group that was doing live stream compilations out of the uh, Arab Spring and and, uh, specifically in the stuff that was happening in Tahrir Square. And then that same group went on to work on the same thing for Occupy Wall Street. So that kind of pushed me back to the left, took that like populist seat and and kind of like centered me on on those issues. I would describe myself as a progressive. I'm definitely on the uh, the Democratic Socialist brand new Congress side of, of things. I'm a privatist because I'm a trans person whose life is directly affected by which color the House and Senate are, nationally and at a state level too. There's something to be said for buying buying time and and uh, and partisan control too but you know I mean politically I'm, I'm aligned I think with the progressive left broadly speaking
1: is it sort of the same skill set for you and that you employ when you're in in the politics mode running a campaign and so on do you see that as do you think of like an agile process when you're uh, running a campaign or how do you think about that
0: looking back to the disaster response stuff the really only added piece is finances right you know, you've got to manage that 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 wing of things but But everything else is strikingly similar. You know, operations, you've got people going out and and doing things, running events, going door to door, things like that. You've got to manage resources and and recruit volunteers and and do all of those sorts of things. Communications, again, strikingly similar. I mean, I I actually put a lot of the intelligence studies uh, courses that I I took um, while I was studying that to use in in political communications, the overlap is huge, you know? I really like the organizing model where you empower volunteer leaders and organizers to do their own thing, to build their own cohorts and volunteer groups. Um, I think that the most powerful thing that we can do as like experienced organizers is train other people to do the work rather than do the work ourselves, because that expands our reach far more than we could do on our own individually.
1: A number of the campaigns that you've worked on have come up short in states that are tough uh, or districts that are tough. How do you understand that success of the other side in those places? Do you understand why people like you grew up with are voting the way they do and not going along with your preferences?
0: this is a personal theory, but I think there's data to back it up. So, um, so bear with me on, on this, but I would look back to my home district, the third congressional district in Tennessee, right? Very gerrymandered. It didn't used to be that way. That was the first campaign I'd ever worked on. The first campaign I ended up, I actually ended up running the campaign, um, essentially because the campaign manager and the candidate had some conflict. And and so I ended up being essentially the de facto campaign manager there. Um, and the very first thing I did, uh, other than buying every book I could find about running a campaign and reading them all in a single weekend was look at the data, right? So I looked at I looked at everything that was in in Van. and I you know, coming from a background of doing GIS and data work specifically, I looked at the numbers and I, I realized that something wasn't adding up when I looked at everything. And what wasn't adding up was that the numbers that I was seeing in Van, should have been way higher for the population that we had in terms of like registered voters and things like that. So what I did was I flipped it around. I said, okay, I'm going to take something from the disaster world we call the the SOVI index or the social vulnerability index, which actually maps um, the social vulnerability of a population down to almost like a precinct level. It's almost (laughs) at at that level of detail. And I overlaid that with our voter data. I saw a huge gap. And what I saw was... That we had areas where the social vulnerability index was really high, right? And so in, in my mind, that is an area that Democrats should thrive in, right? People that are representing that part of the population. And voter registration rates that were practically non-existent. So then I said, okay, let's look at where we have our voters. And instead of sending you guys out to canvas these, you know, these lists from Van, I'm gonna send you to knock every single door in the precincts where we have the least voter registration and the highest social vulnerability index. And I went out and and did some canvassing myself along the same lines and what I, you know, I ran into more than a few people that said, wow, I've lived in this house for 30 years and you're the first person that's ever knocked on my door to ask me about politics. And I think that was a really profound discovery for me. I did the math, you know, I looked at our win number and I knew that we would have to register something like 30,000 new voters. In order to win that election, and we didn't make it. You know, we got I think in the forty low forties percentage range.
1: Were those people that you were then targeting, who were socially vulnerable but unregistered, were they likely Democratic voters? Do you think, as you talk to them, or
0: absolutely, absolutely? And and it wasn't it wasn't along along racial lines. It wasn't along. Um, and if anything, I'd say that it was along class lines, right?
1: Because it seems like a lot of those voters, if you read the national press or something, were swept up in the sort of Trump, Trumpist attraction. But do you think that's not the case?
0: I don't think so. I I think that's true in terms of rural areas, but I'm talking about you know, South Chattanooga here. Right. I mean, this is like one of the most densely populated areas in the district or the most densely populated area in the district. The conventional wisdom is, Oh, well, if you have a precinct that has, you know, low registration rates that must be like transient folks or college students or, or what have you. Right. But, but what I, like I said, what I found was we were knocking on doors and people were telling us, Hey, we've lived here for 20 years and nobody's, nobody's come to talk to us. I haven't voted since 1993. for or something right that was the kind of message that we were getting and so my personal opinion or my personal belief about that is that we as the democratic party have stopped investing in these places in these states right there are states in in the country who don't even have paid state democratic party directors i think walking away from the 50 state strategy 20 30 years ago was a massive mistake It might have given us some short-term gains, but we've left countless swaths of the country that we could otherwise be competitive and behind. And that's, I think, really, if I look at the root cause analysis of that, I think that's what it comes back to.
1: I followed politics since the 70s, and I used to know the senators, all the senators from every state. I might be pretty close still. But you know, for me, Tennessee was like Gore and Sasser. That's two Democratic senators, and they had Democratic governors, and this is before sort of things switched over in the border states and Gore lost in 2000 his own state and so on. And I think there was a a notion nationally that that state was lost, like West Virginia got lost, like Iowa now seems to be lost. But I think I've also talked to a lot of people who are like, part of it being gone is that we haven't fought for it.
0: Yeah, well, it's not that we haven't fought for it; it's that we haven't invested in it.
1: You need to invest in it to fight for it, right?
0: Well, the party needs to invest in it to fight yeah. for it, right? Yeah. I mean, that you know, Tennessee is home to places like the Highlander Center, right? the 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 Crucible Foundation of the um, uh, uh, civil rights movement in the sixties. Countless civil rights leaders trained there. You know, we I think Appalachia, especially East Tennessee, right, has a long history of um, just like West Virginia in some ways, of union and, and labor rights. You go back as far as the Civil War, uh, Appalachians were blowing up Confederate uh, newspaper buildings in Chattanooga. The Tennessee Valley Authority, one of the biggest, most effective, um, progressive programs of the New Deal era is is still something in Tennessee that people fight for and hold dear. Even if they're Republicans, you come after the TVA and they're going to cut your throat. That's the the mood there, right? I believe that Tennessee is actually a... You know how people will say oh I'm a, I, oh I'm socially conservative fiscally liberal. I think it's the other way around. I think Tennessee is fiscally liberal and socially conservative because of those influences, right? I mean, we were one of the first states that had tuition-free college. Any high school graduate now can get two uh, two years of community college for free, and that's funded by the state. I think the people there believe in government as a tool. The conservative Christian nationalist movement has so strongly worked its way into the fabric of politics there, that people without the local experience and perspective really don't see that distinction.
1: I mean, we started off talking about how the Republicans' socially conservative wedge issues are quite effective in certain areas. Do you think the Democratic Party should sacrifice social liberalism to win? How do you think we Square that circle if we're trying to compete in a state where the electorate is how you might characterize it.
0: We need to stop focusing on persuasion. Everything has become about oh, what's the two percent in the middle that we can we can try to persuade to vote for us, right? We need to expand the electorate. We need to register those 70,000 likely voters that aren't registered in the third congressional district. And I, I don't, I can't speak for the rest of the country um, or even the rest of the South, but. I can point to efforts like Stacey Abrams in Georgia as success stories of expanding the electorate. The same thing can happen in Tennessee with the proper investment. It's gonna take time and it's gonna take 10 years, but if we can invest in the organizers that are doing the work, if we can make sure that there's money to be had to pay people to do that, we shouldn't be relying on the occasional well-funded Senate campaign to come along and solve all the problems once every four or six years. We should have a party infrastructure that's constantly trying to move the needle. And I don't think that Tennessee as much as I have respect for the the leaders in the party that are there, I don't think they have the resources to do that effectively.
1: I hear a very similar thing from people in other states that are in similar conditions, like former Senator Doug Jones in Alabama would say the same thing about Alabama. I hope we can turn that around. I want to ask you about some of your recent work. What is C2G Strategies?
0: They are a relatively small political consulting firm. Robin and Billy Kane are the founders. They're great folks. They were kind of the go-to fundraising uh, folks for brand-new Congress candidates. I did some consulting work with them um, after the 2020 cycle was over. Yeah. You know, email, copy, communications, like technical consulting, things like that.
1: What is BLD.ai?
0: Build AI is a really interesting place. So that's my uh, quote-unquote full-time day job, right? On top of my full-time startup founder job. Build AI is a, what they call a partner network. So they're essentially a consulting firm, a, a tech consulting firm that builds products for their customers. And then the customers keep the intellectual property of the products, right? And it's a little bit different than a lot of other consulting firms like your Accenture's or, or whatever. Obviously it's a startup itself, but um, they have a global presence. So, you know, I work with people every day that are, in the Philippines, in Egypt, in Singapore, Australia, it's a global uh, company. And so there's a lot of, um, there's also a huge variety of experience there. Engineers, data scientists, product managers, designers. Actually, a close friend of mine um, referred me to to them. I got to be honest, after the 2020 cycle, I was burnt out. I was like, oh my God, I'm done. It's the the every every cycle or two like feeling of like, ah, the politics is terrible. I need to do something else, you know? I kind of was looking for a tech role again and um, and that kind of landed me there. But uh, yeah, they've, they've got some really talented folks and actually we have, um, I've been able to leverage that to help build out Shire. Um, We have a few engineers from Build AI that are actually um, working on uh, Shire. So it's a bit of a partnership as much as a, as a job for me.
1: So Shire is the reason that we're talking. What's the founding story for Shire? What are you up to there?
0: So in 2020, I was campaign manager for Kimberly Graham's U.S. Senate race in the four-way primary in Iowa, right? A huge, huge political presence in the state there at the time. The caucuses were going on. I was one of the lucky folks that caught COVID in the very first wave <laughs> at the caucuses there, actually. There were people traveling there from all over the world to to, to attend those. But anyway, the pandemic hit, right? Um, shortly after that, and our primary was in the summer, and uh, so we, you know, Kimberly's campaign. I mean, we were the progressive upstarts, brand new Congress candidate. She won the election in uh, Des Moines and in, in Polk County uh, as the county attorney uh, this this past uh, this past year. Actually, her campaign was really riding on the the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren energy uh, that was present in the state of in Iowa, and even we had a lot of like the Pete folks supporting her as well. Um, and so we actually had the most robust field operation of any of the campaigns. We had hundreds of people knocking doors, doing like direct outreach. You know, we, we, we did the typical like college campus land and expand kind of strategy since there were so many small colleges in Iowa.
1: And then the pandemic
0: hit, all the colleges shut down and everybody got sent home. And our, you know, field operation went from contact rates up here, you know, to dead overnight, right? So I had to figure out, okay, how do I convert a campaign that was incredibly ground-focused into something that can work fully remotely in basically no time at all, right? And the problem I kept running into was our volunteers were either college students or retirees. Um, And the tools that we had at our disposal to organize remotely and and doing remote work, right? That that whole kind of in the early days of the Zoom revolution, right? They were either way too expensive to afford uh, or they were not user-friendly enough for an average volunteer to use or to leverage well. We would get people onto our Slack and they would just stop responding and then go quiet and it would take effort and and great difficulty to re-engage them and pull them back in, right? And we tried different things, but you know, I, I ended up realizing that the biggest challenge that we had was when someone goes to the website to, to sign up to volunteer, they fell out of form, they hit a brick wall, right? And in software, we know that if you sign up for something and then you have to wait, that's a huge, huge problem, like tons of fall off there, right? And that continues to be the experience even now. For most campaigns, um, you know, if you go to any major campaign website right now, pull them up, uh, the Warnock campaign, uh, Fettering campaign, those are the ones, those are the examples I used from the last cycle. You'll fill out their volunteer form. They might redirect you to an Act Blue page, which is not an ideal experience. But for the most part, what would happen is you just get added to their email list and you get pe- peppered with fundraising asks. And maybe there's a volunteer ask or two in there somewhere, but it just kind of gets lost in the noise. What I realized was we needed a way to get people from sign up onboarded and engaged immediately, very, very quickly. Certainly not in a matter of days or weeks or more, which was kind of the norm. So I got with a couple of developer friends and we duct taped together a solution using an open source tool called Rocket Chat. It's not like the most user friendly thing either, but we used Rocket Chat and WordPress and a couple of other tools Um uh, Blue Link in its very early days and kind of cobbled together what we call the Volunteer Hub. And that let us onboard volunteers on a web form. That data would get synced into VAN automatically. It would create an account for them on Rocket Chat and then it would load the, the chat application, mm-hmm. create an account for them, and put them in like the welcome channel, right? And then what would happen is a volunteer leader would immediately say, hey, welcome. Um, glad you're here. I saw on your sign up you wanted to do texting what would be a good time to talk about that? The experience was the volunteer was immediately engaged by an actual human being. And and we saw, you know, 10, 20 volunteers on a weekend go from that to hundreds based on that alone. We also saw people from all over the country starting to actually join the volunteer pool. So it wasn't just islands anymore. It was Somebody in Montana who cared about that Iowa race because the Senate, the control of the Senate was in the balance, you know, and they thought, oh, Progressive is going to be the best candidate there. And then we added some additional tooling where we could like throw on little cards around the edges using a Google sheet. It was very, very hacky and very finicky and, and tricky to work with. And, and uh, a lot of our like organizers hated it because of how like uh, finicky it was from the back end side of things, but it worked, right? And we, we, we saw that engagement go up and so on. Because we built that on kind of open source tech, when we um, when we didn't make it past the primary on that one, I ended up working uh, in the U.S. Senate race in West Virginia in the general. And I did the same thing, set up that that open source tool set, built it out. And we actually had a pretty, pretty substantial amount of volunteers and energy going into that. And obviously, West Virginia is a tough state for other reasons. What I realized was that we had something—we had a process that took a lot of that friction out of getting started in volunteering and that volunteer uptake. After the 2020 cycle was over, kind of went through my burnout phase, and about a year later, uh, late 2021, I decided, okay, like it actually started with a Twitter thread, as so many um, modern ideas do. But I was kind of—I uh, was kind of ranting a little bit about we really need to fix this. This technology needs to be. Know, a focus for the party. Like we have all these campaigns doing this in such an archaic way. And the response I got from that was so impactful that I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I'll, I'll figure it out. I, I started the organization. We raised, I don't know, 10 or 20K on a crowdfund fund, like, uh, you know, November, December of that year. And I uh, took that and, and started Shire. So here we are a year and a half later, we're really close to having an alpha version in MVP that we can actually roll out. To our test uh, clients, that will um, is is essentially a much better, more robust, more secure, and uh, uh, more technically sound recreation of what we had on those campaigns in the twenty twenty cycle. Obviously, we'll evolve it beyond that, but that's kind of where we're at in the current moment.
1: When you onboard this larger number of volunteers, what are they deployed to do?
0: Text banking, phone banking, postcards, specialty roles like uh, supporting other volunteers, you know, leadership. In West Virginia, uh, we actually had a volunteer who was a data scientist who we pulled in to help us basically build our own models for voter targeting. So she was from New York, right? We would never have found her. We would never have connected with her if it weren't for the power of that community that that kind of tool set gave us, right? At scale, what it's about is voter contact, right? If you can get people to make more calls, send more texts, write more letters, etc. You're gonna have a measurable impact on the outcomes in that race. That's what campaigning is all about at the end of the day.
1: How much time did you spend looking around at other volunteer management solutions? It feels like to me for decades, I've been hearing a similar tale about we need to recruit, and deploy volunteers to do things that make them happy and are effective on the campaign. And I've seen tons of people building applications to help do that. There were tremendous numbers of people who act where this actually worked, like the Sanders campaign had tons of people calling through all of the voters in Iowa, or there's mobilize, which had a lot of, uh, success in bringing volunteers from one place to another and event management and i i mean going back over time i can just think of tons of examples of people who said they had tackled this and i'm not clear why we haven't settled on something that would put you in a position where you didn't think this was needed how do you assess what's out there and why it's not working
0: well i wouldn't say it's not working i'd just say that it's not working for this particular use case so you mentioned the Sanders campaign in Iowa. They were an amazing example of relational organizing. And I don't know if you've heard of the Bernie blueprint, right? But they released a, a guidebook for how, how do they get to that point? Like, what do they do? What was the tactics and so on? The thing that that they'll tell you and the thing that even, even the Biden campaign will tell you, you know, I, I talked with um, Matt Hodges a little bit about this and, and some others is the Bernie Sanders campaign had 70,000 people in a free Slack account because if they had paid for that slack at market rate, you've got this corporate tech that's designed for companies, right? They assume, oh, you're gonna spend eight, $5 to $8 a head because those people are gonna be making you money and that's trivial, right? But that's $500,000 a month at that scale.
1: It's not gonna get into the campaign budget.
0: No, 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 absolutely. So what they did was they suffered, you know, they, they, they had a 30,000 message upper message limit and you, they would post something in like a day and a half later it would be gone. And so they just had to deal with that, right? They didn't have the integrations. So they built all of these like manual processes around (laughs) working around those limitations, which was amazing, but also just absolutely painful, right? Everything from onboarding, you know, how do we get people into Slack in the first place to um, how do we keep them engaged and keep them from getting overwhelmed? Their biggest challenge at that point um, uh, was with fall off, you know they get people to sign up, again get them in Slack, and then they just disappear because they didn't download the app or they didn't have a way to get notifications. So it just sort of faded into the background, right? For for a lot of those folks, or they were technically overwhelmed because they're not, you know, working in a corporate world anymore where Slack is like a, or a similar application is the normal way of doing work now. The Volunteer experience was not um, uh, conducive to retaining those volunteers, so. So those are that's like a key, a critical example, when one of the most well-funded presidential campaigns in history has to use a free version of Slack to get their remote operations done. That's not going to scale for anybody else. It's not going to work for your mom and pop congressional race in Tennessee or you know whatever, right? They poured immense amounts of resources into making that work. So I think a lot of the organizing tools, you know, Mobilize is an awesome tool. I love it. I've used it. It is really good at organizing around events but so often what the kind of work that we're doing as a as doing voter contact is very much shift based it's you're going to show up at this time we're going to work together to do these these numbers or alternatively if it's yeah. something like texting it's often off the off the cuff or random right it's like oh hey we've got a batch of texts we need to send just came down from the field guys right um, so what that does is all of these volunteer organizational tools are either leaning into the relational model, which is awesome, your outreach circles, those, those types of tools, right? Or they're doing event-based stuff like Mobilize, but it's all very much transactional in some way. You're going to come to this event, you're going to do the thing, and then you're going to you're done, right? That's the model of those types of things. Or in the case of something like Outreach Circle or, or similar applications, this is a thing that's going to be kind of in the background throughout. Those things have a very physical bias, a very physical component. They're not really designed for uh, remote operations, right? This idea that we can take any volunteer from anywhere in the country or around the world and have them do voter contact in a way that's meaningful. So there's different challenges there. But I mean, I think the, the Bernie <laughs> Slack example is like the key thing that I, I would highlight. That's it right there. That's the big example of uh, where, the, where the gaps are.
1: Another thing that I've seen in some of these volunteer apps over time, volunteer management technologies, is that people have tried to figure out how to put a hierarchy of management into it so that you could have a pyramid of command or at least feedback going up and down and some sense made into how you deploy people. Is that anything that you guys touch on?
0: Well, so the reason that people use Slack and similar applications in the business world is precisely because it's freeform, because you can build what you want with it, right? So I would not presume to prescribe a particular way of running a campaign because I've been on the receiving end of that, you know, being in Tennessee and having the coordinated campaign or the the D trip say, oh, you should do it this way, and and that didn't work, right? So, you know, I'm very much a, a fan of... I also see a lot of people kind of tend towards this. Oh, we want a one, single solution that does everything, right? I don't. I think that works for some campaigns, but I don't think it works for all of them, right? I think there's going to be, there's always going to be differences in electorate or in uh, tactics and so on that need that adaptability. So, what I really want Share to focus on in these early days is how do we remove all of the friction for remote volunteering. I'm calling it digital operations is like the term that we've coined to talk about that. It's a, it is an equal component to field operations in the grand scheme of things. And we think that that's the winning formula.
1: So I'm imagining hundreds or thousands of people in the same messaging area and chaos. How does this scale this idea of people reaching out and communicating and being able to have the campaign be responsive in the way you're talking about? if there are a lot of folks on?
0: Yeah. So that, so, so I would not, when I say, when I said that I would not be prescriptive about how you should run your campaign, I think we do know what works based on experience already. Right. So what we're doing from a systems perspective, back to that systems thinking kind of conversation is first of all, on the front end, uh, kind of from the user experience or volunteer experience side of things, um, there's, we've, we've brought this concept of spaces, right? So if you can imagine, I'm sure you're in 15 different slacks, right? Um,
1: Several. Yeah,
0: yeah. And Discord has the same problem, right? Where there's, you you get in there and there's, you have like, oh, you're in 40 servers and nothing matters, right? What we really want to do is encourage people to route their volunteers to where they need to be specifically. So on a national campaign, if you're saying, you know, your structure is, or even a federal campaign at at a local level, Right. If you're saying that your digital operations structure is going to be, okay, we're going to have a digital operations division, it's going to be like field, it's going to have its own paid organizing leader, which is my personal recommendation and what I'm going to kind of suggest campaigns do, um, then that becomes in essence a digital field office, right? And it's that organizer's job to... Make sure that people that are coming in are routed appropriately and to help from that from a technical perspective we are making the onboarding customizable so that let's say the campaign wants to organize on basis of type of task right so they the person comes in they say i want to do texting i want to do phone banking great maybe the campaign is prioritizing phone banking so they they like see that and they're like oh hey we're going to put you in the welcome channel for this particular task group and that's the only thing you're going to see on day, day zero stepping into the into the system it's like cool Here's the phone banking welcome channel. An organizer is going to talk to you immediately. And then, oh, here's the other part. So we haven't built this yet, but we're going to be building a learning management system into this as well. So the idea being that, oh, great, you come in, here's your training checklist. Here's the next steps that you need to take in order to become a phone banker. And so like routing people intelligently into the right organizational units is, is a big part of the platform. My personal recommendation for how people use that. Is, is really aligned with that Bernie blueprint idea of having smaller squads led by a volunteer organizer, where it creates a more intimate group of people, a more intimate environment for people to work in. They know the people that they're working with on a regular basis and so on, 20, 30 people maybe, even within those larger task organizations. But a campaign might have a more regional focus. Maybe they decide that, oh, they want to put all the Californians in one pod and just do it that way. right? I think you know we, we don't want to prescribe a particular approach. We want to give people the tools and the flexibility to do what works for them, make recommendations, and I think iterate and improve on those recommendations over time as we see what people are doing with the tool.
1: So how does this fit in with the other technology that a campaign would likely have? How does it fit in with the voter file management, with relational organizing, with all of the different communications and data technologies that are out yeah. there.
0: If you take a look at our website or our pitch deck, one of the things you'll see in there is, um, is that I've got a slide somewhere that says ecosystem first. So uh, it's my belief that one-stop shop tools are not necessarily going to work for most campaigns. Our objective is to reduce as much of the friction as we can from that volunteer signing up to getting engaged and trained which we'll, we'll handle within Shire. And then also getting started in you know, with those third-party applications or those other tools and making it really easy for them to access that. So um, my, my co-founder and CTO, he has a long and uh, uh, significant set of experience in uh, complex identity management platforms. So like he led- What's his name? Edward Monocle-Vuelsteek. He will probably kill you for mispronouncing his last name, but it's very hard for me. <laughs> he actually is a- uh, staff software engineer at Vivo right at the moment. He basically was in charge of their entire identity management and Okta uh, uh, deployment. If you're familiar with Okta, if you're not, it's a um, like a single sign-on centralized identity management platform. So you know this isn't something that's going to make it into our MVP. We hope that we can do this over the next six to eight months, but we also want to make Shire an identity provider and integrate with those other applications too. So you can imagine in you know 2024, let's say you're a campaign that's setting up your operations. You can uh, have a volunteer sign up on your website, express their interests, come into Shire, meet their organizing leader, take training right on the spot if they want to. And then on the other end of that, kind of the, the downstream side, through automatic account provisioning, where we integrate with those applications and say, hey, this person passed this quiz to become a texter. So Spoke, I'd like you to create an account for them, right, through some kind of integration, right? and we can pass through their, their login information, right? So if we integrate with those other providers, we can say, hey, Spoke, um, create this account. Oh, by the way, they're ready to log in now. The volunteer clicks a button on Shire, opens a new tab, logs them into Spoke, and they're they're where they need to be. So trying to remove all of that friction from onboarding, engagement and training, all the way through to actually taking the action downstream is, is, is huge. And centralizing that account management also means that organizers don't have to spend you know, 26 hours a day, resetting passwords for people and and managing countless accounts and so on. So that's, that's another benefit that we think that can bring.
1: Although what I've found is that many people who build applications in the space think they're the provider of identity. Can you be subordinate to someone else's identity scheme and how loud that them to create accounts within your app rather than you being the central holder of such info. There's sort of like a who is at the center problem that, that often happens.
0: You know, I, I thought about this a lot, actually, and I think I think that the long-term answer to that question is actually that we need to come together as a consortia of political tech and say, hey, we're going to create this this entirely separate foundation or, or organization or something. You know how Mozilla Foundation works, right? Where they have like a separate kind of entity to their their company that does other things that is specifically about creating an identity management and that standard that is a five or 10 year project, probably like certainly not something we could solve today. But I would say that like in the case that you wanted to, for example, let's say use like an action ID, right, as, a, as an upstream, right? I don't see why we couldn't support that. You know, we don't have any, anything on the roadmap right now to do that. Our philosophy is very much interoperability. So I want other applications upstream and downstream to be able to interact with Shire very easily because that's, that's the power of Slack, right? You can integrate things upstream and downstream. You want to log into Slack with Google. Oh, you want to pass information in from those other applications, right? Like if I'm in, let's say one of my peers, uh, from Unified, right? If he's got somebody on their social media app, and uh, the campaign wants to pass them through to join the Slack or equivalent, right? And in, inside of our Shire, they should be able to do that with some kind of a pass through, right? That 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 short circuits that onboarding process and makes it clean and 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 approachable. Like we really want to make sure the volunteer experience is elevated to the top of every single thing that we're doing. We know as as uh, software designers, as, as as people from the tech world, that that user fall off is like the 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 great enemy to be slain in in terms of uh, in terms of tech. And if they're if you're losing users along the way, it means that something's wrong and needs to be fixed.
1: Do you think that Shire as a company is a good opportunity to grow, to be profitable, to get scale? Or what is your aim for it as an enterprise?
0: So there's two things to that, two pieces to that. So I think um first is that this is a universal problem i believe that we're solving um you know when we when we launched we did did our soft launch and uh we had a, a wait list that included still includes um obviously the cycles changed now so so some of these campaigns are no longer campaigns they're sitting senators like john fetterman right our wait list included the Fetterman campaign, it included the Greens party of New Zealand to Eritrea, right? We've got so much interest from so many wide varieties, you know, the city council campaigns in in Arizona and so on. Like To me, that suggests that there is a, among organizers, there is a universal recognition of the nature of this problem. We went to Netroots Nation last year and had a booth, uh, first appearance there. Um, I've got a whole now digitized, thankfully, stack of, uh, of cards from that and uh, importantly also we we actually won um, best new tool in the pitch competition there you know room full of 200 250 ish like organizers and technologists we won that category right from from that pitch competition so so i think there's an appetite so that's one piece in terms of where we want to take shire as a company my co-founder and i have talked about this at length we don't want to take the same kind of route that like a mobilized took right our objective is not Hey, we're gonna build this and then we're gonna sell it and walk away, right? For me, and this this comes back to my personal uh, motivations, right, as a trans person. The control of legislatures in particular is a vital security interest for me personally and for my community. We have to maintain that control, or we are going to we are going to be harmed, right? At least in the in the short to midterm, right? What I want Shire to do is to bridge what I see as a really important gap and make campaigns more effective. And I want to build Shire into a sustainable organization that is a player in the space for a long time. Because I think that something like Slack, for example, is the glue that holds a bunch of business applications together, at least in terms of process and function, I think something like Shire can be the same thing for the civics ecosystem. And I think that expands beyond political campaigns at a certain point. Obviously, PACs, unions, nonprofits, et cetera, have similar demands. But we're starting with political campaigns, as I said, because that's where the greatest need is right now. And I think it's also the most, you know, to stop the bleeding, it's the most pressing area of concern. I mentioned the Mozilla Foundation before. I think Mozilla as a company is actually a really great model for something like Shire and what it can be. They have a for-profit company, the Mozilla Company. Um, they also have the Mozilla Foundation, which is a... Um, I think it's a C4, but the organizational structure is not not. It's really the relevant part here. But Their whole strategy was about building an ecosystem, not just not just a browser, an ecosystem of applications, letting other developers and people build on top of what they built and working with them to guide those developments. So similarly, we want to give people the tools to build on top of Shire. Actually, in our core kind of design philosophy from a technical perspective, we're using kind of a newer technology called Web Components, which is... The side uh, nerd topic for a second, but uh, basically the idea is that it makes things very modular. It would be very easy for someone to build another module, for example, to deploy onto Shire in the future. So you could even see things like, you know, in our long-term vision, we may even see things like uh, Spoke or, or other third-party applications kind of blur the lines between what is a part of Shire and what is not. You know, we really want to be that, in the same way Slack did, be that kind of glue for the ecosystem as well.
1: There are you know, dozens of other progressive political technology firms at different stages of development around and about, but I'm certain you're aware of most of them. Who do you see as kind of allies or good partners oh, yeah. in doing this, and who is less so?
0: There are a couple of names that really spring to mind right away. So um, Unified, and I'm sure you're familiar with them. They're building a social network.
1: Yeah, I, I know Cheyenne and... I've had him on the show and probably will have him again yes
0: yeah so so he and i have talked about this actually a few other examples are daisy chain the folks there are really doing some really cool stuff around you know building the the zapier uh, of sorts for for political tech and i think that's really helpful i've talked with folks at civitech we're pretty big fans of each other and uh uh i've also um spoken a lot with adam from universe he's doing some really cool work there i don't see competition i see collaboration and alliance right an example of that is, you know, we're one of the things that we decided to do to not only accelerate our development, but also make it more robust is actually use some existing open source technology under the hood. So we're using something called Matrix. You can go to matrix.org to kind of learn more about that. But it is a end-to-end encrypted decentralized communication protocol. It's used by something like 70 million users around the world. The French government built their entire internal communications ecosystem on it. It's a really powerful basis for communication. Mastodon is to Twitter as as Matrix is to Slack, if you will. The hope that I have is that other applications that have chat solutions or uh, offer similar protocols or need to communicate with each other can adopt Matrix as a foundation. So, I you know I, I said to Cheyenne, I've, I've mentioned this to Adam. Hey, when you, when you guys build chat, let's try to work together. One of the Matrix uh, kind of principles is this idea of the federation, where you have an address, you have a home, but you can still message other people or reach other people if they're a part of the same Federation, right? So it's really creating that kind of interoperable unified landscape. So if we can build together standards like that, um, not just for you know for chat and things like that, but also possibly in the future for things like identity management and so on. For all its problems, Web3 has taught us that decentralization is a useful strategy for not only making platforms and tools more interoperable, but also security, right? In an age where we have hostile actors like the Russian government, like certain political parties who are not playing by the rules, security is a top of mind concern. This is deviating a little bit away from the question, but I talked to some abortion rights organizers from Missouri at Net Nation and they were telling me, hey, we we aren't using Slack. We can't use Slack for organization because we're afraid that they're going to get subpoenaed if our our state government goes down this path, and then we're going to be in trouble. The people that we're providing services for will be put into legal jeopardy as a result of that. And so, you know, being an encrypted service, they were really excited about like the prospect of having something that could kind of fill those gaps. But, but I mean, I, you know, it comes back to that that core question of interoperability and, and collaboration. I think that's like that's got to be the future of of political tech: less walled gardens, less centralization, more interoperability and collaboration between tools.
1: I interviewed Chelsea, who is the general manager at NGP Van. I know that company a little, having started the NGP software side of it, and she was talking about trying to be much less of a walled garden and much more allowing integrations openly, more transparency, so maybe that that message is getting around. All of these companies have their own self-interests as well as broader interests. And there's a lot of balancing to be done, but it'd be interesting to see how that all fits together as we go forward.
0: Yeah, I think so too. Similarly to the problem we're trying to solve, it can't really be forced from the top down, you know, that that it has to come from, <laughs> has to be real grassroots and not astroturfed, right? And in terms of the collaboration and cooperation between these 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 vendors and firms, as someone who's a relatively new entrant to the political tech space, having been in tech before, I, I see a level of maturity growing that I didn't see even five years ago, right? There's there's more diversity. There's more innovation that's happening. I love the open source movement. In our current system, uh, at least, there is um, something to be said for organizational imperative and people advancing a particular vision as a part of a greater whole. So I think that... You know, groups like Scale to Win that are taking Spoke and and you know really pushing that technology forward, and they're set up as a cooperative, so they're doing that in a really progressive way. But they are, um, you know, funding additional development by the nature of their their sales, right? And so that's like pushing the technology forward in a way that open source alone can't do. So I think there's like an open source private partnership approach that we can take with this. And and again, I come back to the Mozilla example as like a key success story about that.
1: What's your business model? Do you sell this like as software as a service? How do you distribute it or what's the plan?
0: That's a great question. So it's so funny. I was actually talking with Adam and and a few others about this. Um, It's tricky to price uh, political tools. Like (laughs) I'm sure you know this too. You want to make enough money to, to uh, grow and support the services, but you also want to support the movement and the, the campaign. So what we've settled on, at least as an initial approach, is actually pricing based on a campaign's fundraising numbers and and paid staff. This is actually something that I have to give credit to uh, Adam at uh, Universe. That's, that's how they're priced, or very similarly. What that does is uh, keep you out of trouble with the FEC in terms of like fair market. Use right because you're not necessarily giving a discount to a particular campaign, one or the other. You're just saying that the fair market value is lower for smaller, smaller campaigns, right? And so pegging it to that fundraising number and staff number means that we can kind of gauge the relative size of a campaign and say, okay, if you're really big, you're going to pay us a lot more. If you're five people in a trench coat in in you know rural Alabama, you're gonna you're gonna pay us basically nothing, right? And so that's the approach of like cr- trying to create that model that that works for, for both ends of that spectrum.
1: Sounds like a bit of a pain to police. If you have a version that is like you pay for every paid up volunteer and those are all signups and they connect very well to the software, then it seems like it would be an easier thing to automate and so on.
0: Well, I think the thing that's really tricky about that, right. Is that like, um, as a campaign manager, as someone who's like run grassroots, um, very like scrappy campaigns, predictability is really important. So, um you know when i'm budgeting if it's you know july <laughs> i'm trying to figure out okay what, what are my numbers between now and november i don't know how successful my volunteer scaling is going to be what if like five thousand people ch- knock on my door because i got some crazy endorsement or something and all of a sudden my budget's blown out of the water we want to be flexible as a provider um while offering that kind of predictability so we can say hey if you expect that you're going to raise you know five hundred thousand more than you did the previous quarter this is what you can expect your rate to be based on that approach right and so like that can give them at least some some measure of predictability and obviously we would be flexible on a case by case basis with that too and and i think in terms of policing it i'm i'm less worried about that i think because the records especially around like fundraising are pretty public. That's information that I can confirm with a simple FEC search once a quarter, right? So we may implement a process at scale when we're kind of a bit bigger to to do that and make sure that we don't have anybody like egregiously abusing that system. There is a mechanism to make that kind of confirmation, um, you know, at least available to us.
1: Have you pitched this idea to higher ground labs?
0: I have. We actually uh, pitched them uh, last about a year ago for cohort five. Um, we were super early, didn't have a prototype, didn't make the cut that time, but we went on to win the pitch competition at Netroots. So we've been, uh, encouraged to apply for cohort six. So, um, I'm actually working on that application this week with my, uh, advisors and so on. So we're, uh, we're going to apply one of their investment theses is for this cohort is actually about this specifically about new ways of working and, and remote work and so on. So I'm hopeful that we'll be able to, um especially now that we have a prototype and we have something a bit more substantial and we've proven subtraction that we uh, will kind of gain their support. We've actually raised about $70,000 through an equity crowdfunding campaign uh, through WeFunder, which uh, Shion from Unified might've mentioned. They also did something similar. Um, yeah. And so we've actually got until about April 30th until that's concluded, but that has enabled us to do a lot of this core initial development, you know, pay contractors and, and, and staff to, to build out some of the core features and, and we're pretty close. You know how software is, but I'd say we're within like a couple of weeks of an alpha release that we can actually put to market
1: potentially. Samantha, what else should I have asked you that I haven't?
0: One of the things, and, and this has been a hot topic of conversation in the in the space, uh, which is the role of private equity in political tech. Higher ground labs and, and new media ventures and, and some of the other accelerators and, and funders in the space have... Um, a role to play but i it's our commitment that we want to maintain shire as a business that stands on its own and as a major player in the movement in the long term and so we're not looking for a quick exit we're not looking for a huge personal monetary return you know my co-founder and i are committed to making sure that our workers first and foremost but also the movement owns shire in the long term so we are going to be very careful and very deliberate about equity partnerships. As a result of that, there are approaches that we can take to make that work, where we can get the funding and, and work with partners to help us accelerate our, our growth and you know be a force to be reckoned with in time for twenty twenty four, while still maintaining the ability to move in that direction in the future. So that's that's something I want to mention because I think it, I think it's really critical that infrastructure people come to depend on is maintained in perpetuity without any kinds of anxieties about what's going to happen to that. You know, the NGP van acquisition created a lot of that uh, nervousness, right? And so whether, again, whether or not there's anything to be worried about there, it's something that we want to make clear very early is that we're here for the long haul and we're not going anywhere or selling out, so to speak, to any other, any other entities, even if it comes along.
1: I think it's a complex topic. And I think sometimes having a bigger, stronger enterprise is a way of persisting. Whereas a lot of the people who are out on their own, on average, tend to wither away and die. If you're in the for-profit world, which you've started out that way, you have to figure out how to continue to have people want your service. And you need to charge enough. You need to have resources to do that. I think there's a lot of different rationale that makes sense to go down different paths and I would just say keep your options open a little bit as you as you learn and and figure things out
0: I mean you know we're not we're not going to be hard-nosed about it I mean if it were a matter of the technology surviving and continuing to be available to folks I mentioned spoke earlier right so that was a that was a, a great example of an open source project that has spawned a lot of innovation in private companies that are taking that and using it to advance the movement. Right. I I would sooner take what we build and open source it than sell it to anyone. Because what that means is that that technology that we build can then be built on top of later by anybody who wants to, if you want to take that and and say in that hypothetical scenario where, you know, our business is not, uh, you know, profitable enough or, or, or what have you. Right. We could take that approach and I think have a much more lasting impact than, if we were to just sell to a larger firm for example
1: potentially I mean I've seen open source projects wither and die I've seen acquisitions into private companies wither and die and I've seen the opposite so I think a lot of it depends on the on the actual value you've created and uh, so and, that's, and that's well beyond the technology
0: absolutely I mean it comes if if there is a world where what we are building is no longer needed, awesome. <laughs> Uh, but uh, that world is not here yet. And so I have a feeling that um, I have a feeling that that's, that's not a bridge we're going to have to cross. But, you know, I think the other thing is, too, is that I'm, I'm keen on helping to build an ecosystem. If that means that we are helping to spur other innovations and building better ways of working and doing things in the future that aren't what we're building now, this is a bit a bit wishy-washy, a bit hypothetical, right? But uh, I'm happy to, uh, to, as you say, keep the options open and see what the future holds.
1: I mean, I, it's one of the reasons that I find it continually fascinating to follow this space because, you know, there are so many smart, well-meaning, accomplished people now wading into it. When I started, the list was much smaller. The market was much smaller. I'm pretty proud to have built something in my attic that uh, is still in a certain way used a couple decades later. But I'm certainly very open to and supportive of change and improvement. It's one of the reasons I, I love talking to people like you who are hard at work at that. And I appreciate you taking the time today. Is there anything else you want to say?
0: Something that is really important to me is how this will impact accessibility and people with disabilities. I've had COVID twice. I had it in the first wave. I've developed long COVID and I have like some serious health complications as a result of that. You mentioned you've had some health struggles lately as well. And and so many people do, especially with our healthcare system being the way it is. I think that the Democratic Party and our technical institutions as well have not done a great job of making it easy for people with disabilities people without transportation, people that live in remote areas that aren't, you know, in a swing state or a battleground district somewhere to participate in supporting causes that they believe in. One of the things about Shire that really excites me is if people are going to be able to participate in these campaigns um, from home or from wherever they might be, that's going to enable a lot of people to come to the table, bring their gifts and their talents to these causes into our fight then would have been able to do that before. And it's gonna empower them and it's gonna make a meaningful difference in, in campaigns everywhere. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. And I think that's a really important thing that I I am always keeping front of mind. Things like looking at screen reader support, things like, like making sure that we do appropriate usability testing when we have the resources to do that, to make sure that accessibility is there. In terms of an end cap for the podcast, I come back to this being an existential fight for me. It's not hypothetical. I mean,
1: look, I think it is for you. I think it is for the country. One piece of the problem is the attack on trans people, but the global problem is the potential for evisceration of the democracy and the turning into a right-wing Christian authoritarian government, that kind of analogous thing happening around the world. That's what, Trump would like to do. He's running for president again. It's the kind of characteristics that DeSantis and other leaders in the Republican Party have to different degrees. That's the fight we're in.
0: Yeah, I, I I feel it very keenly and directly. And so I've put a lot of my personal energy, enormous amounts of my personal energy in, and probably to my own de- detriment and probably to my own, like an impact on my health as well um, over the last Six eight years uh, in this fight. Like I said in the beginning, or earlier in the in the podcast, um, I think it's incumbent on those of us that have the experience and the skills needed to fight these fights to build systems that don't depend on us. If we can build systems that, you know, to your point, that the impact is is substantially greater than than any one individual could do alone. A famous saying is logistics wins wars. And so if we're in one, we need to make sure that our trucks are arriving on time.
1: Well, I'm glad you're working on the logistics and I wish you a lot of luck. Keep at it and keep in touch. And if there's any way I can be helpful, you let me know.
0: Thank you. You can find us at uh, on Twitter if it's still around by the time your listeners are listening to <laughs> this. Listen, Very at likely. Shire, uh, and GetShire.com or Shire.blue.
1: Awesome.